0: Welcome to Bite Size Battles. Throughout most of history, things have changed and developed slowly. As long as people are fed and entertained, or indeed crushed with fear, as has happened many times in the past, they don't demand too much. But sometimes, quite often in fact, the status quo isn't enough to keep people acquiescent, and the masses or at least powerful figureheads, put pressure on the rulers or elites to make change more quickly. Think the English barons forcing King John to issue the Magna Carta, or the US government repealing prohibition after 13 years of pressure to do so. But what happens when enough people demand something but the ruling elite doesn't want to give it? Well, in simple terms, Often a massacre ensues, a clampdown, a big, fat, brutal no. Think the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, a popular uprising among Hungarians demanding freedom from Soviet domination. The Soviets said Niet with 30,000 troops and 1,100 tanks, and snuffed the revolution out in ruthless fashion. But sometimes a revolution takes place which gathers enough pace and enough support from people who fervently believe in an ideology that suddenly snap. The rulers can't snuff them out all that easily, and a fight breaks out between those loyal to the status quo and those demanding something altogether different. A major break in the continuation of a nation's, a continent's or even the whole world's history, occurs. Last time we looked at religion as a cause for why we fight. Ideologies can be just as powerful. Secular religions for their adherents. So welcome to this, the fourth episode of Why We Fight. Revolution and Ideology. There was once a period of about a hundred years, from the 18th to the 19th centuries, in which it seemed the status quo was being threatened or overturned everywhere. There were revolutions or wars of independence in what became the United States of America, in China, throughout most of Europe, including twice in France, and right across Latin America. So frequent and widespread were these. The time has become known as the Age of Revolution. The spark for these emerged from a revolution of a different kind, the Scientific Revolution. The Scientific Revolution was a series of developments in chemistry, biology, mathematics, astronomy and physics, which began to transform the views of society about human existence. Our place as individuals within nations, and our relationships with God and our rulers. For thousands of years, save for exceptions like ancient Roman republicanism and Greek experimentation with democracy, the vast majority of people lived their lives unquestioning under the authority of a single ruler, supported by a noble elite. These ancient and medieval monarchs, emperors, oligarchs, shoguns, chiefs and khans were challenged from time to time, but cases of general uprisings of the population were rare. Far more often, if rulers were challenged, it would be by their own elites. This central control was underpinned by overwhelming military force, cultural acceptance of a person's place or lot, economic pressure or religious belief the conviction that your God has ordained your ruler to rule you, and to go against said ruler would be to defy your God and damn your soul. So it's not too difficult to understand people's reluctance to rise up then. But from the 16th century onwards, the scientific revolution and the work of men like Copernicus, Galileo, Sir Isaac Newton and Sir Francis Bacon began to change that the world today wouldn't be as it is without these great scientific pioneers. In turn, the scientific revolution spawned the European Enlightenment, which created much of what we consider today to be Western thought and culture. Ideas like the sovereignty of reason, liberty, progress, toleration, constitutional government and the separation of church and state These are all deemed a given today, almost, dare I say, taken for granted, but they were radical concepts in the 17th and 18th centuries. To some, they were downright dangerous. Ultimately, though, these ideas, especially those of liberty and constitutional government, influenced American revolutionaries to overthrow the British in a war of independence which erupted in 1775. The British, of course, resisted these ungrateful Yankees, whose colonies wouldn't even exist had it not been for them. But gone were the days when a ruler could simply expect his or her subjects to obey and pay. Those subjects demanded a say in how they were ruled and the laws that governed them. And when the Americans were denied these simple things, the deck of cards collapsed. When the French soldiers and sailors who had been sent to aid the fledgling USA returned to France, they carried the flame of revolution back with them. Louis XVI and thousands of French aristocrats felt the new wave of revolution on the backs of their necks as they crouched over the benches of guillotines in ten years from 1789 to 99. A few years later, as Napoleon's armies swept across Europe, so too did the seeds of change. His occupations sparked nationalist movements everywhere, which then, after Napoleon's demise, morphed into violent demands for greater levels of democracy and much, much less monarchism. The Spanish and Portuguese empires in Latin America fractured as they became too weak to hold them together, and entire new nations emerged. Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia. The scientific revolution and the Enlightenment had given birth then to such powerful new ideologies that they swept across continents, tearing down centuries old monarchies, breaking up empires, and destroying orthodoxies which had previously stood undisputed. Of course, not All the revolutions of this period were entirely, or even at all, about the ideas of the Enlightenment. But the point is, new and attractive ideologies drove millions of people to war, to fight for what they hoped was a better future. And we can see the same effects with equally powerful but hugely damaging ideologies like Marxism, Bolshevism and Communism. Their proponents have been so committed to the ideals of these ideologies that the new ruling elites demanded changes that were so harsh and fast and simply wrong that many millions of people died in the 20th century because of them. China's Mao is reputed to have killed 45 million people. 3 million died in Pol Pot's Cambodia. 20 million in Stalin's Soviet Russia. The ideologies of fascism and Nazism, too, were responsible for the deaths of possibly 80 million people, including 6 million Jews. But before World War II, they were alluring, tempting ideologies which promised a better life and more national prestige. They lured in Italy, Germany and Spain, the latter through a bitter civil war. But given the very costly failed experiments of far left and far right ideologies, you might think the 20th century's lessons would be so blindingly obvious that those ideologies would have died in 1945 and let's say at the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. But there's been a recent resurgence in interest in far left and far right ideologies. They remain seductive and often because they give people a chance to voice discontent when they feel disenfranchised by a perceived political or cultural status quo, or indeed a change to the status quo which they don't like. In the US, for example, it's no accident that there is a simultaneous increase in self-styled Antifa riots and far-right violence. The more one feels threatened by the other, the more motivated each become in a vicious cycle that must be interrupted and calmed, because history teaches us that revolutions and civil wars start this way. Ideology is so potent that it also led to a global cold war which lasted half a century and led the world to the brink of nuclear catastrophe. Generally considered to have begun with the Truman Doctrine in 1947, And ended with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, the Cold War was essentially a military and ideological standoff between the democracies of the West and communist Soviet Russia and her allies. The Cold War got hot through deadly conflicts in Korea and Vietnam, but it came closest to all out annihilation during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Thankfully, Sense and peace prevailed, but it highlights again how ideologies can drive us to the very brink of global calamity. During the crisis, the US readied the largest seaborne invasion force since D-Day, raised their military readiness to DEFCON 2, which is the highest it's ever been, and had air force nuclear bombers in the air over Europe 24 hours a day. Had President Kennedy and Chairman Khrushchev not worked out a deal, we all might not be here now. Ultimately, because of ideology. The force of revolution and ideology then has been irresistible several times throughout history. They are the secular religions of their believers, and many, many people have laid down their lives for them, or indeed, been victims of them. I'll close with that famous quote so often misattributed to Voltaire, but actually written by Englishwoman Beatrice Evelyn Hall. It reads, I disapprove of what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. This one line has summed up for so many the widespread belief in Western culture of the paramount importance of freedom of speech. It's self-stemming, From each man and woman's birthright to live life free. Freedom is an ideology and has been fought for by Spartacus and his slave army, by Scotsmen under William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, by American and French revolutionaries, by Poles, Arabs, Indians, Filipinos, and of course by millions of Allied servicemen and women in World War II. And that list is just a tiny fraction of people who have fought for freedom. So here's a call for all of us who disagree with one another. Don't fight each other. Savour your right to disagree at all. Join us next time for one of the earliest causes of human conflict, the lust for territory. I'll see you then for the fifth episode in this Why We Fight series land. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening.